0: The pastors at Church 21. Um, my family is in the West Islands, so we attend the West Island one, and I just move around to all the different locations uh, preaching. So, just preaching NDG, and so, so pleased to be with you. One thing that happens during Thanksgiving uh, in Montreal, and I was explaining this to our kids this past weekend, is that uh, no one comes, very few people come to Montreal for Thanksgiving. Everyone leaves for Thanksgiving. So, uh, we're very thankful that our kids have had no one to play with in our neighborhood this week, right? So thankful, Uh, and we've gotten a lot of family time, it's been amazing, Uh, but that's just the reality in Montreal. So I'm so glad that you're here. Hopefully you're going to have some sort of, uh, I don't know if McDonald's has a Thanksgiving meal that you can order, I don't know what the the deal is. Maybe you're connecting with family, but happy Thanksgiving, so glad that you're here. Um, Also, I wanna just preface this sermon by saying, we didn't intend to have this sermon. This sermon came because we were doing a sermon on gender and sexuality. But as I was preparing and Jordan was preparing, uh, we just realized we couldn't put both those subjects in the same sermon. Not that they couldn't go together, but that we didn't have enough time to explain them really well. And we wanted to give enough time to each one of those. So today is going to be uh, sexuality. So happy Thanksgiving. Welcome to Church 21. Your friends aren't here in the city. And we're going to talk about sexuality. It's one of the weirdest sermons to ever do on Thanksgiving, probably. Um but we aren't normal, so that's okay. Um, also, I would also say this, I wish that we could do this at my dinner table as opposed to doing this me standing with a microphone, you seated, quiet. Um, these conversations are often better as conversations. You might feel things that come up in you during the sermon, you're like, mmm, I don't like that, I don't like how you said that, and that's okay. It's okay to feel those feelings. I would say don't check out until the end, Like, listen all the way through, and if you want to, I'm going to hang out afterwards. If you want to talk about it, great. If you're not ready to talk about it yet today, great. I'm not leaving the city anytime soon that I know of. Uh, I'm a citizen, staying here. So if you want to process this later on, amazing. What I want to discourage you from doing is listening to this content, going home all by yourself, being really frustrated, upset, uh, bitter, and letting this just gnaw at you talk about it, journal it, write it down, pray about it. Um, Also, I'm going to talk to both Christians and non-Christians. So if you're a Christian and you're here, so glad that you're here. If you're a non-Christian and you're here, so glad that you're here. We're going to deal with with sexuality and specifically according to how how is sexuality supposed to be expressed within the kingdom of God. All right. And you're like, what kingdom is that? Don't worry, we'll get to that. Okay. Um, So I think that's all the preamble I, I wanted to do with this, with this uh, sermon. So let me pray and get going. God, thank you that you're here. We can be thankful. When our friends go away, when they come back, we can be thankful. Lord, we can th- be thankful because um, we're, we have the opportunity to get to hear from you this morning. I, I pray that you would remove me from the equation and that you would speak through me and that you would uh, speak to people's hearts, to their desires, that Jesus, you would be the hero of this, that at the end of, of this sermon this morning, it wouldn't have been a morality exercise or uh, religious points that we're processing, but rather people would actually get to engage with you. <clears throat> I pray that you would, um, you, you would care for us and minister to us and change us and transform us and that um, for anyone who's here that doesn't yet know you, Jesus, that this morning they might meet you. And for people who are here that might be rebelling against you, Jesus, but are saying that they're followers of you, that you would change their heart. And for those who are coming in just full of your presence, that that, that would continue on. And so uh, please speak to us this morning. We love you. Amen. All right, sexuality. Let's get into this. So we do, uh, we do a sermon series, not every September, but every few years we do a sermon series on on sex and uh, sexuality is this interesting thing because sexuality um really lacks a precise definition it depends on who you talk to or what field of study you're looking at to actually get a, a definition of sexuality and if you can come up with one good luck you know like that's amazing please submit it to me because you end up getting pages of things you have to include when you're talking about sexuality but what is really easy to figure out is the how sexuality gets to be expressed, right? Thanksgiving, family dynamics are so interesting when you get together for Thanksgiving or Christmas and you always know like uncle so-and-so, he's gonna show up and at Christmas, he's gonna have a little bit too much eggnog and all of his stuff is gonna come out, right? And it's gonna be really neat and fun. Um, We know how sexuality is okay in our family, whether we embrace it, which ones we embrace, how we talk about it, what we don't talk about. Um, we kind of know as a society and a culture, um, what are the boundaries for sexuality, if there are any. Um, we have moral frameworks that, that get into this as well. And then we also have theology. So who is God and what has God done? And then who are we if we're God's people? And how are we supposed to live out this sexuality? Right. So this is complicated. A complicated subject. But the newest reality is that sexuality has now become an identity. Sexuality has now become who someone is. So I'm going to give a quote by a non-Christian woman named Marjorie Rosenberg. She says, uh, from antiquity until perhaps a century ago, choice was presumed to govern sexual behavior. But in the late 19th century, with burgeoning medical science as midwife, a new kind of creature was born, the homosexual." His entire identity based upon his sexual preference. And that's in her work inventing the homosexual. So in in essence what she's saying is that um, who I am is now attached to our sexual identity in our day and age. So if I'm gay, that is who I am. And then everything else gets gets subpointed underneath that reality of who I am. But anthropology doesn't start there. The study of humanity doesn't start there. Because the reality is, okay, you might be gay, you might not be gay, but the reality is that we're all human. And that's where we have to start. That's, that's where we have to start with our, our deepest identity. And that's actually where the Bible starts as well, which is, this is where a lot of um, the studies of, of humanity and the Bible can actually agree on things because we're human. So I want to quote a non-Christian and then a Christian uh, to you around this, this idea that we are human. I shouldn't have to give long quotes to tell us that we're human, but uh, I will anyway. Those who are lesbian, gay, or bisexual, those who are transgender, transsexual, or intersex are full and equal members of the human family and are entitled to be treated as such. The ageless cliche that everyone is equal, but some are more equal than others, is not acceptable. No human being should be denied their human rights simply because of their perceived sexual orientation or gender identity. No human being should be subject to discrimination, violence, criminal sanctions, or abuse simply because of their perceived sexual orientation or gender identity. And that quote comes from Navi Pillay, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. So as far as I know, Navi is not a Christian, and yet saying, we believe that we are all made equal, that we are human, absolutely human. Okay. Now, let me go back about 500 years ago. John Calvin writes this, and this is a theological point that he's making. Man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself until he has first looked upon God's face. We are human. We we are way more than attraction or sexuality. There's so much more to you than that. So that's where I want to start today. Who are you? So I'm going to do this thing that I'm going to talk about who we are at the beginning and then going to get into sexuality, Okay. And it's really important we do this because if we start with sexuality, we could end up with a religious conversation, just taking your moral points versus your moral points and you're just kind of like lobbing hand grenades with philosophy and a little theology and some sociology and you're just going back and forth. But we'll start out with identity and then move into sexuality, okay? If you're not okay with it, that's what I'm doing anyway because that's what's on my paper. So um, who are you? who are you? That's a complicated question. If you were to meet someone at a, at a dinner party and they say, who are you? What, would you? what would you say? Maybe you would tell them your name. Most likely you would talk about your occupation. Maybe if you're really proud of where you live or where you come from, you would mention that. But that's not really who you are. Identity is complicated. Listen to Steph Lawler, her book on identity. She writes, we use masks to show who we really are or who we want to be. We're constantly playing different parts, but what those parts add up to is ourselves. The problem with identity is that identity seems to change so often. It's like you're, you're into this type of fashion or this type of music or this sports team, and it seems like your identity can so easily shift according to what, what it needs to be. We feel like chameleons, in a sense, constantly changing color to fit in wherever we need to fit in. And the problem with doing this is that we don't we don't really know ourselves after a while. We don't know who we are anymore. And in fact, this is a story almost as old as time. There's a story in Genesis, Genesis the first book in the Bible, Genesis 11. Talks about this group of people who wanted to get together and build a tower. And it says in the text that they wanted to make a name for themselves. Now, if you were to make a name for yourself in the biblical sense, it means that you don't, you don't know who you are. To make a name for yourself means that you don't know who you are. And that's us in a very real sense. We're in this perpetual babble, trying to build who we are and making sure we're okay with our family, with, with our workplace, we're okay with our culture and our society. It is how do I fit into the larger narrative of what is going on? And we're told all the time, you have great worth. You're here for a reason. Yay. We're told by many, many influencers, right? My son and I were talking about TikTok on the way, on the way in here and, and different influencers and who has a say into your life and what your identity really is. And so we, we asked the question, who's, who's right? Who's right about our identity? Who gets final say over who, who I am? Who's the person that we can't say, well, you can't tell me who I am, right? Who's the person that says, well, actually, I can. I can tell you who you are. Who is that? And so this is where we're going to get into Scripture. Um, I think the Bible is really clear. Um, I think the Bible's clear on lots of things, but I want to say the Bible's clear on at least three things that we're going to look at this morning. One is that I don't know your background, I don't know where you're coming from, but I can tell you this according to Scripture, you are deeply loved by God. And we're going to see that in a minute. You are profoundly loved. Maybe you feel unlovable at your workplace, maybe you feel unlovable in your family, maybe you feel unlovable in your society but with God, you are deeply and profoundly loved. You can't measure the depth that you are loved. And if we could actually like, get into that, we would be losing our minds right now, but instead it, like, it's still trying to get into our, our brain that maybe is still a little tired at 11.03. But you're deeply loved. Second thing that's clear is that you aren't God. And I'm so glad that you aren't God. I don't know you like super well, but I'm so glad you're not my God. I'm so glad it wasn't on you to hold all things together for me this morning. Really, and you should be so glad that I'm not God as well. So we're loved by God, we aren't God. The third thing is that in Scripture, there's only two identities. So in the Bible, the best-selling book in all time, there's only two identities in the Scripture. One is righteous, and the other is unrighteous. That's it, right? I'm like distilling the Bible way down for us this morning. You're loved by God, you're not God, and there are two identities, righteous and unrighteous. And it's so simple, but I know that we're not going to like it. I know we're not going to like it as we get into this. And, and I'm speaking beyond just homosexuality, right? Because God has something to say about sexuality, and this sermon is about sexuality. And we often don't like what we hear from God about this, because it goes against what we want. It goes against what we want to be true. It goes against sometimes what we feel like doing. So we're going to get into it. So righteousness, the righteous identity in Scripture belongs to one person, one being. Like waiting for someone to say it, but we're not gonna say it. So belongs to God. Belongs to God. This is the only one in all of Scripture who is righteous from front to, to end. There are other people who who receive righteousness along the way, which we'll look at, but one being from beginning and end of this story who is righteous. To be righteous means that you're completely pure that you always do what is good, right, and perfect. I don't know how it became like a surfer's thing that you're like righteous. Like, it wasn't that great, right? It was, you fell, you, you got bit by the shark. Wasn't cool. Um, but to be righteous is good, right, and perfect. And true. All the time. All the time. It's unfathomable to me to think about doing what is always good, right, and true because I know that's not me. There's only one being. And God, we believe that God is a creator and that he made us. And he actually made us without rebellion in us. That we were made to find all our identity in him. Right, When, when kids are born, my oldest son, Nima, is here with me this morning. When he was born, it's baby Bernier until we give him a name all his life was found in us. All of his identity was found in my wife and I, in who we were. And when God made humanity, all of our being, all of our identity was was found in him, the one who is good, right, and perfect, that we were to share his life. But he gave us two trees, and I've talked about this. We've talked about it a lot during this series but it's important he put these two trees in the middle of their living room in the middle of the garden he said this is a tree of life and this is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil if you eat from this tree you're going to die and what did we do it's like telling a kid like there's there's something dangerous over there don't go over there definitely whatever you do do not go over there and what is that kid going to do he's going to obey their parents like a good child should no you're going to go over there they're going to do what they shouldn't do. And that's what we did in the garden. That's what we did. We, we believed a lie. We went to that tree and we ate thinking that it was going to give us a better identity than the one that we had. We're going to name ourselves tree people or tree huggers or whatever it was. We're going to name ourselves. But we were going to give ourselves a better identity than the one that God gave to us. But what happened in that moment is that we died. Humanity died, meaning we have expiration dates put on us that we are not going to live forever. Romans uh, 3. Romans is a book in the New Testament. The Bible's broken up into two big sections. Old Testament, before Jesus came, New Testament, Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and a little bit of church history as well. But listen to this, this letter to the Romans. It says, as it is written, none is righteous, No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. We once had worth. We were made with worth. We were made in the garden to find our life in him, not to create our own identity. We had worth and now we have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then later on in verse 23, it says, for all have sinned and fall short. Of the glory of God. We believed the lie. We broke the boundary. God is righteous, and all the rest of us are unrighteous. Happy Thanksgiving, right? Two categories righteous, God, unrighteous, everyone else. The problem that we have, and the problem with religion, is that we look around a room like this. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm better dressed than than those people. Or I don't say bad words like those people. Or I do say some bad words, but not those bad words, like those people. And we look around and we we justify ourselves based on our performance and our behavior and our actions. And we think, because I'm this way and that person's that way, when God looks at the two of us, God's going to say, you're bad. Uh, Dwight, you're kind of bad, but you're better than them. And I have an extra spot. I got an extra ticket. So come on in. And that's, that's so much of what religion does. It's this comparative justification that I feel justified because I'm looking around a room feeling better about myself. But the playing field in scripture is level, all unrighteous, all of us. And there's no way to become righteous on our own. You can't sneak your way in. You can't Trojan horse your way into God's kingdom. It just doesn't happen. When we compare ourselves to Jesus, right? When, when I talk to people about, about sin and rebellion sometimes, I'm like, okay, well, the standard that I use is Jesus. Are you better than Jesus? Never, ever had anyone say yes. And I've talked to thousands of people. We know that we're not Jesus. We know, well, no, I'm not like Jesus, but I'm not that bad. I never killed anyone. It's like, well, neither is most of humanity, Right? If that's the standard, like, we're, we're setting the bar really low, really, really low. And here's the, here's the other thing. Not only is God righteous and we're unrighteous, but God is against all unrighteousness. God is against all unrighteousness. He's against ungodly, which is all of us. He's against sinners, which is all of us. And he's against his enemies, which is all of us. You see, this sermon is not primarily about sexuality. This sermon is about the reality that God has enemies. God has enemies. And listen to this, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Um, if you don't have a Bible as you're leaving today, please grab one. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 the writer Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Did you know that those who are unrighteous will not be part of the people of God? Didn't you, did you know that? This is like such a bummer of a Thanksgiving sermon. Like, God's good, you're not, no hope, let me pray, go eat turkey, good luck. It's like that would be the worst. No kingdom. But it, but it gets worse than that. Let me go to Romans one. I knew you wanted some Romans this morning. Uh, Romans chapter one, verse 18 says, "The wrath of God. The wrath of God." I remember like, the wrath of my dad in his eyes. He was just like, "Oh, dang it. You know, like I hit that thing. I didn't know that's how he hit that thing. I hit it. Not good. Um, the wrath of God, which is perfect. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And you women are like, oh, phew, just men. No, 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 that means humanity. Men and women who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We're so unrighteous that we actually, when we see truth, we hide it. We bury it. We say, no, I don't want to look at that. And that's a temptation this morning, as, as some of you feel like, wow, this might be true, is that we might bury this. Saw a squirrel still burying little acorns and nuts yesterday, and we were kind of gently throwing sticks at it <laughs> to get it move. But like, I don't even know where I'm going with that. I'm going to keep moving on. But we feel like we're in this hopeless fight against God. We could feel like we're in this hopeless fight against God. This would be the worst. I, I'm okay fighting a three-year-old. Not really. Right? I get it. I go to jail. But like, if I'm going to have an enemy, it's like I want the three-year-old down the street to be my enemy. Because his mom is probably going to change his pull-up and like put him to bed. and like We're not going to have this real war. But scripture is saying that we're at war against God. Or rather, God is at war against us. This is not good news until it is good news. Let me read Romans chapter five. And please listen to this. Romans chapter five, verse six. For while we were still weak, that's another way of saying unrighteous. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Doesn't say at the right time, Christ came and killed the unrighteous. Christ died for the ungodly. Then in Romans five, verse eight, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners or unrighteous, Christ died for us. And then in verse 10, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. So this is a good reason to be thankful because while we were unrighteous and though the wrath of God was was laser focused on us, Jesus came and stepped into the place, took the wrath of God upon himself on the cross, died for the unrighteous so that you and I could have an identity change with him. Theologians call it the great exchange that on the cross, Jesus became unrighteous so that you and I could become righteous. This is good news for our Thanksgiving weekend. And the good news is that he's not waiting for you to perform and show him how good you are so that he can say, okay, now I'm willing to come and die for you. He came while you were already there because he knew that you had no power to be able to do anything about this on your own. Jesus came because of our identity. He didn't come to affirm us. He didn't come to affirm us but to die for us. And as Jesus came, Jesus was highly offensive. His ministry was highly offensive, but not because he was a jerk, but because of his message. And his message to everyone was repent and believe. That means we're all wrong. Turn from the way you're going and turn to me. Turn to me. Jesus came to make the unrighteous into righteous. And so let me go back to that, that passage, 1 Corinthians 6, and let me shed good news on it. Don't you know the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Sometimes we talk about sexuality and it's like, man, why is this like the, the, the pet issue of Christians? And like, they're so against it. It's like, there's lists, there's lists. You know, there, there are these massive lists in the New Testament that's saying this is what unrighteousness looks like in its forms, but it's all unrighteousness. And then in verse 11, Paul writes, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. And so the good news in this is it doesn't matter how you've worked out your unrighteous identity, you're loved And Jesus is wooing you into his kingdom. Jesus is attracted to really broken people. Some of us feel like, oh, I need to clean myself up so that Jesus will see me as valuable. And it's like, no, 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 Jesus expects you to be broken and messed up so that he can come and actually make you whole. That's how he rolls. Jesus came not not for for those who are well, but for, for those who know that we're sick. And Jesus conquers death, so he goes to the cross and then rises from the grave to bring us an eternal identity, that he wants you. And Jesus speaks about being born again. People get, um, it's, it's like a label that people put over some churches like ours. Oh, those are the born-agains, or whatever. But that, that's such an incredible image, isn't it, to be born again? Like, don't go too deep into the image, but like the idea of getting a complete new start. That you are completely new, that you have a new identity, a new name, new everything. And that your your first birth, what you were born with, that's not going to identify you anymore. Jesus is now going to be your new identity. So let's get into sexuality. Like I said, I, I probably won't answer all the questions that you wish I would answer. Um, but I would, I would be glad to talk about this stuff after. Um, with sexuality, whether it's heterosexuality, homosexuality, another sexuality, um, you don't get to say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I, want, I need you to rescue me, forgive me. But I'm still going to be Lord over this aspect of my life. I'm still going to be in charge. You, you, you don't get to do that. You don't get that. Jesus actually had a guy come to him who was a rich young ruler who said, hey, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus touched on, on the idol of his heart, which was riches and the security or comfort that they brought, and he was unwilling to leave his riches to follow Jesus. Not that all of you need to leave your riches, but for that guy, that was where he wanted to hold on to and couldn't, couldn't see Jesus as Lord over that aspect. Let me read this to you, Luke 9, 23. Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross daily and follow me. The cross was an instrument of execution and torture. Jesus is saying, in a very real sense, following me is going to be like daily execution and torture to the things that you want, to the life that you think that you should have for yourself. It means you're going to have to keep taking your life and putting it out there and saying, okay, Jesus, this is yours. You reorient me where you want me to be going. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains a whole world, and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, will the son of man be ashamed when he comes into the glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So sexuality, your sexuality, if you're a follower of Jesus, here's what you do with it. You, you hand it out to Jesus. I don't know if your desires are for the opposite sex, if they're for the same sex, if they're for both sexes, but here's what you do. You take it and you hold it up to Jesus and you say, this is yours. What do you want me to do with it? Because I want you and I'm loved by you and a part of your family and I'm part of your kingdom and I want to follow you the way you want me to follow you, including all areas of sexuality. And I'll say, this isn't easy. This isn't easy. Because some of you have acted, some of us have acted on desires. Some of you have a current lifestyle that, that we think is okay. And Jesus is interrupting to say, no, if you're going to follow me, this, this is not okay. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change everything about it. Last week was on porn. I still haven't listened to it. But that's, that's a secret sin of so many people. They think, yeah, yeah, I'll follow Jesus, I'll give, I'll show up, I'll do all this stuff, but I get to keep this part of my life because I can't trust Jesus with this area of my, my sexuality or my addiction. But sexuality gets submitted to Jesus, and it's a holy sexuality that we're called to. It's this uh, author, Chris, Christopher, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, it's Y-U-A-N, so yawn, maybe, um... But he writes about the problem in the church is that sometimes we want to either fully embrace homosexuality and, and, and speak away some of the scriptures. Or we want to make people into heterosexuals as though that was Jesus' primary purpose. And he says we need to get rid of some of these categories in the church and call people to a holy sexuality. A holy sexuality, one that where we live our sexuality like we actually belong to Jesus and that that part of us actually belongs to him and he gets final say. This is a big deal. This is a big deal in in our church, especially the downtown location where I know there's a lot of people missing uh, for Thanksgiving, but we're a pretty young church downtown for the most part. This is a big deal. Sexuality, sex, gender, all this stuff is happening all the time. And so one of the questions that I'm, I'm asked often, and this is much better inside of a living room setting than a, a preaching setting, is the question is, can I be gay and, and be a Christian? Can I, can I be gay and, and be a Christian? And if I'm sitting with you, here's what I'm going to say. We can get to that question, but it's, a, it's, it's not a good question to start with not a good question to start with. The first question I want to start with is, do you, do you believe that, that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead? If you have, do you submit your life to him? Are you willing to take your sexuality and put it out there and let him be the one that's in charge of that? If you tell me no, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to you more about Jesus. I want to help you understand more about who Jesus is. I want you to understand his compassion and grace and what he actually did. Because my concern is that if I jump right into answering that question with a, a yes or no, is that we're, we're only talking morals now. We're only talking morals. And we're gonna be talking past one another or I'm affirming something or not affirming something and, and I become God or, or I affirm you as God and it's just not a good thing if I'm your God. But if you say, yes, yes, he is, he is my, my savior, he's my Lord, if you say yes, then I'll say, then you, you and I have to receive everything he has said, especially the parts that we don't like, because that's what it means to be Lord. Uh, Justin Trudeau has not invited me in to have a conversation about the things that I don't like about his government. This haven't gotten, maybe all of you have, I haven't, Right? He hasn't invited me into that. In a very real way, God is not inviting us into rewriting his word. He's not inviting us into playing with words. Well, this word actually means this or this culture meant that. Like, we don't want to play. We don't want to play. If yes, we receive everything he has said, even the hard things. And I'll just say, following Jesus is hard for everyone. Everyone. Take up your cross and follow me. It's hard for everyone. But it's not religion. Remember this. It's not religion. It's, well, Jesus, I took up my cross six times this week. You must be so pleased with me. Not about that. It's that you're already loved. You already belong. And because you do, now you live out this way. So let me just be very brief about what the Bible says. And... um. This comes from the Christopher Wan's book, uh, Holy Sexuality. I would, I would commend that to you. I'd commend works by Rosaria Butterfield. I'd commend works by Sam Albury. Those are all really good authors uh, to start with. But any sexual relationship outside of a male and female marriage isn't how God intended or desires. And I'll say that again any sexual relationship outside male female marriage isn't how God intended or desires. This is why this is a a thing about sexuality, not just about homosexuality or heterosexuality or whatever else. All sexual relationships outside of that actually miss the design and intention and beauty of why God made us actually sexual beings. There are only six passages in all of scripture specifically speaking about homosexuality. And I want to read one of them to us this morning. Romans chapter one, verse 24 to 28. Paul writes, therefore God gave them up and, before I say this, sometimes we feel like, oh, they had no idea what was happening in Rome in the first century. I'm like, are you kidding me? Have you read anything about Rome in the first century? It's like, there are prostitutes everywhere. Like, like, men, it was okay to have a boy for men, right? It's like, And that's completely okay. Our culture today is like, no way, like, that's gross. Rome, it's like, we think we're like, sexual liberation, yay, like, we're, we're nailing it. Like, Rome would have looked at us and been like, Psh, hold my beer, right? Like, they would have showed us very different elements. So we don't look back and read this document from the first century with snobbery. We can't. So let me, let me read Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And that's where it begins. We exchange the truth about God for a lie. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden and what continues to happen. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so we we like our, our creature gods that we can listen to, our influencers, And then verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those who were contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. When we read a text like that, it's very, very simple. You might not like it, but it's very simple. And what people um, have done, and one of the guys in particular, his name is Matthew Vines, is he's played with all these texts. And he sounds so smart as he's playing with these texts. Be like, oh, actually, this means this and this means this. But they're playing. Now, I would say to play with God's word is dangerous, right? It's tampering with, with what he has said. Sam Albury who became a follower of Jesus, identified as, as gay, now I would say he's a Christian with same-sex attraction, going to live a celibate life. He wrote, uh, is God anti-gay? Really helpful book, little, little book to read. I mean, you're, like, you're talking about a lot of books. This one's like manageable, okay? Little book. He wrote the, or He says this, attempts to read these texts, like the ones I just read, as anything other than prohibitions of homosexual behavior do not ultimately work. The plain reading of each passage is the right one. It is homosexual practice in general rather than only certain expressions of it which are forbidden in scripture. To attempt to demonstrate otherwise is to violate the passages themselves. Yet these very same texts list homosexuality alongside many other forms of behavior that are also against God's will. The very passages that show us that homosexual activity is a sin make it very clear that it is not a unique sin. It is one example of what is wrong with all of us. So the Bible is really clear. It's also really clear about sexuality, which you could go and, and listen to other, other sermons, especially the first one in our September series. The Bible's really clear about what is prohibited in the kingdom of God and even in the created order. But what's also really clear in scripture is that Jesus is ready to embrace, forgive, love, walk with, and transform anyone. Like the deepest, darkest, Person, I remember working it through with one of my daughters about mass murderers. I don't know how it came up. I really don't know. It's not normal conversation in our church, in our home, not church. But um, and she's like, "Daddy, but what about that person?" And I'm like, "That person's not too far." She's like, "Oh my!" It's like she was understanding the the the, the breadth of the grace and gift that God actually offers to anyone. And so what I want to say this morning is that. Whatever sexual identity you have, Jesus is so much better than that. Your sexual identity cannot provide for you. It can't give you lasting value, meaning, and purpose. And at some point, even if it gives you value, meaning, purpose in this life, it can't last. It won't last. You won't have harmony. You can't have peace with the one that you were made for and by because ultimately you weren't supposed to define yourself by your sexuality. You're supposed to find all of your worth in being in being a child of God. He is better. Sexuality, attraction, experience, they can't save you. They can't rescue you, but he can. And Jesus' primary purpose is not to ultimately change your sexuality. I want you to hear this. Jesus' ultimate purpose is not to change your sexuality, but to change your heart's. Jesus doesn't say, okay, you can get straight. You can stop sleeping around with people. Then I'll give you a new heart. Stop looking at porn. Then I'll give you a new heart. He says, come to me, submit to me. I'll give you a new heart. Then I'll change and transform everything about you. Even the parts that you don't want me to transform and change. And and scripture says that when we see Jesus face to face, in that moment, we're going to be made to be just like him. All the blemish is going to be gone. All the imperfections, gone. And we have a new attraction. We have a new attraction that Jesus wants for us to be most attracted to him. That we would live a holy sexuality attracted to him and his glory more than any other person. So let me, let me wrap this up by applying this. I wish I could apply this for so much longer, but um, if you're here, if you're here and you don't, you don't have same-sex attraction at all. And you're part of our church. I would say uh, there can't be a tiered system in our church. There's no tiered system of sin or struggles in our church. That really, the, the scriptures are calling us to be the church with one another, but also to our city. And for people who, who are within our church, who have same-sex attractions, this should be the safest place for them. This should be the place where they experience real family, where they have lots of moms and dads. I know not at this location. We're a little bit younger here. But uh, some of the other locations are more well-seasoned. Uh, they're not here, so I can call them old. Um, where they have brothers and sisters, where they have, they have children. And that's what Sam Albury argues. I heard him talk at McGill here, and he was not debating, but having a conversation with someone from uh, one of the LGBTQ plus uh, clubs. And someone stood up and said, um, but you know, aren't, aren't you upset? Aren't you upset, Sam, that you can't be married and that you will never have kids? And he said, oh, you don't understand. He said, I have so many kids. He said, I have so many brothers and sisters. I have so much family. He said, I can go anywhere in this world and I have a bed. He said, you're missing, you're missing the big picture of what God is doing. And Jesus actually told his followers that if, if you lose out on things in this life, in, in the life to come, there are multitudes more of these things. We need to be the church with one another. We also need to be the church in our neighborhoods. We're not waiting for our our neighbors to have the same uh, morals or ethics that we do so that we can be hospitable and invite them over. And we get to know them and we serve them and care for them. We're called to be in relationship with them, to love them, to to be distributors of the king's grace and mercy and compassion, to be there for them when, when things don't go well, regardless of their sexuality or who they're sleeping with or who they're attracted to. We're called to be the light of the world. Jesus didn't ask a bunch of triage questions before he would let people in. He knew, he knew what the triage would reveal. And so he just went to them in love and compassion. Not with a, a finger wagging morals, but with a tray full of his goodness and love and compassion and mercy saying, don't you want me more than anything else? That's what we get to do in our city. That we get to be compassionate people. The second, the second group I want to speak to is if you're here and you're ident- you identify as, as gay or same-sex attracted, I'd encourage you to read Sam Albert's book, Is God Anti-Gay? And then these four things, and I'm just going to be very brief on them. First is he says that you are loved more than you know. You're loved more than you know. That the Son of God was held out for you. I, I'm not going to, my son is here, I'm not going to hold him out for any of you. Right? I'm not going to put him to death so you can live. The Son of God was held out for you so that you could have life and so that you could know how loved you actually are. Secondly, um, if, if you have same-sex attraction, you're gay, talk to God about this. He's not surprised. He's not embarrassed. He's not like, oh, my goodness, I had no idea. Give me a, give me a hot minute. Let me go and, and brief, get calm, and I'll come back. He knows you. He knows you and he knows some of the desires that we have are are bent differently. And if we were to talk about all the things that our desires are bent differently than how they should be, we'd be here all day. But talk with God about it. The third thing that, that Sam says is to begin to think in the right way. Sometimes we think certain things disqualify us from the love of God. They disqualify us from the grace of God and that's just not true that we learn to think in the right way, that God loves me, but he's gonna transform me and he's gonna change me. He's not gonna leave me as I am. The fourth thing Sam says is that you need the support of others. It means that if that's you, you need to speak to someone that you trust. You need, maybe, maybe you don't trust me yet. Okay, fine. Speak to someone else in, within the church. Uh, speak to someone that, uh, that you can trust. Part of my role Part of my calling is to care as as a shepherd cares for someone is to care for you in in your weakness and in the places that that you hurt and to, to walk with you in that. So speak to someone about it. Jesus is here. His people are here. And this church should be the safest place in the world to begin to explore who Jesus really is. Let me end it with this. That Jesus Jesus came out of the grave. Jesus came out of the grave so that we could all come out of our old identity and find life in him. This is powerful, isn't it? That Jesus came out of the grave so that we could come out of our old identity and find our life in him. We're gonna get into the book of Ephesians starting next week until just before Christmas. And we're gonna find a lot about putting on the new self, putting on the new self, taking off the old self, putting on the new self, And that's exactly what we're talking about in terms of of sexuality, that I'm no longer my sexuality, regardless of the attractions or desires that still might be there. I'm no longer defined by that. I'm defined as a child of God. And for some of you, maybe you've been battling, like really struggling um, for a long time, and you wish that these, these desires or thoughts or impulses, that they would just go away. That they would just be taken care of and removed. And the future reality is that one day, all of that will be removed. Maybe some of you don't feel like yourself in your own body even. One day, you're going to be able to express yourself perfectly in the kingdom of God. When Jesus returns, he's gonna make all things right. And that's such a glorious picture. It really is. And yet what we do now is, is we submit. We submit to him. We say, okay, Jesus, I don't like these things, but I believe that you're good, right, and true. And even though I don't like these things, I'm going to trust you that they're what's best because I don't see the larger narrative. I don't see the larger picture. And so I'm submitting myself to you. I think that's a call this morning. I think that's how we're to respond is that maybe some of you haven't met Jesus before and this morning has to be the morning where, where you meet him and you say, okay, Jesus, I submit. I submit. I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe that you're alive, that you're here. And I'm going to submit to you as even Lord. I want you to, I want to hold out my life to you and say, "You, you shape me the way you want me to be. Some of you have to do that. Some of you have been super judgmental of other people. When we get into sexuality, you're like, well, at least I'm not those people. At least I don't do this. And this is an opportunity to repent, to turn from that way of thinking and feeling and to turn back to Jesus and, and be forgiven. Um, some of you have been very inhospitable uh, towards people who are, are unlike you. And so this morning is an opportunity to, to say, okay, I wanna be hospitable to people who aren't yet part of your, your people. I wanna be hospitable toward your enemies, God so that they might know you as, as their dad and they might get brought into the kingdom. And for some of you, you're like, and I've been killing the heterosexual thing. I heard nothing in that that was against me. Well, you're proud. You're proud and you need to change and, and repent from your pride that at least, I don't, at least I'm not this. You need to turn back to Jesus and say, ah, oh, yeah, my identity is not in that. My identity really is in, is in you. So I'm gonna pray and then uh, we're gonna sing and we're gonna respond. I'll, I'll be in the back. Uh, I'll be hanging out for a while after as well. Um, this sermon is, is heavy for some of you maybe because you're like me, you have family members uh, who are gay and that you really struggle and how do I speak about this in a way that, is, it, that they know I, I love them and care for them and that I'm not trying to fit them into a moral uh, category right away. I want them to see Jesus, but sometimes even when you talk about Jesus, they feel that the, moral, the moralness of it coming out. And so it's a really it's a hard sermon to, to preach knowing you know, that that some of my family struggle with this as, as well. And um, so let, let me pray and we'll see what the Spirit of God does. Uh, Lord, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you're here. Thank you that um, we can trust in your ministry and that you're going to work in hearts. Thank you for sexuality. It really is a beautiful thing that you've made us sexual beings. But what a bad identity that is. I pray that you would help us those of us who have been finding our identity in sexuality, to see that you're so much better. That you would help us to see the, the mold and the rust and the, the, the holes in the sexual identity outside of you. And that we would see your glory. That you, Holy Spirit, would do a ministry here um, in our midst that, that we, can't, we couldn't even plan on and that you would change hearts and you would transform lives. And I pray for uh, family members and friends and coworkers and neighbors uh, who don't yet know you, that they would know you. And I pray that we would be the light of the world, uh, not proud, but humble and confident in you, and help us to respond well. Jesus, we really need you. We don't know what we're doing most of the time, but you do. You have a plan for all of eternity, and we want to get behind that.